0: Early in my ministry, a bewildered man named Roger showed up at at the church I was serving reeling from a devastating loss. Once the father of two sons, I learned that his youngest died of asphyxiation from a carrot lodged in his trachea that no maneuver, Heimlich or otherwise, could release. Worse, the tragedy occurred during a party with family and friends on his son's fourth birthday. Overwhelmed in grief and guilt that was disintegrating their marriage, Roger and his wife sought out counseling. Unfortunately, an unscrupulous counselor lacking professional boundaries led to an affair with Roger's wife. Convinced their love was deeply genuine, she divorced Roger. He moved away into my town and my church broken and emotionally exhausted. I quickly came to know a very thoughtful, reflective man, wanting to rebuild his life with his older son, now a young teenager, for whom he had won full custody. A year or so went by when late one afternoon I received a frantic call from Roger. He was at the hospital emergency room. Riding a bicycle on a busy state highway, his teenage son had been struck by a car. It was bad. Roger was choked with emotion. I hopped into my car and met him at the hospital and wound up spending the next 10 hours or so alternately sitting and pacing around the hospital grounds. I was a promising and earnest but very green minister, young and inexperienced. Although I was learning there's not a lot to say in these kinds of circumstances, it was generally enough to be physically present. So we didn't talk much for several hours while waiting for word about his son. Honestly, I found the silence professionally safe. But after a particularly long silent stretch, Roger quietly said, Steve, tell me about faith. What is it? How do you get it? He was profoundly spiritually alert in this moment. His question and desire were very, very palpable. You could almost touch it. A deep conversation ensued. He was calm, collected. I didn't feel very smart or adequate to the moment, and I said so. He accepted that. Actually, Roger said he found some comfort in that. And so our hearts met in that mystical space created by our inadequacies, helping each other to receive the faith that only comes as a gift. Eventually, we got word that his son would live, though he'd be facing a long, challenging recovery. When I was packing up our apartment last month while preparing to move, I found an old, tattered book entitled, The Meaning of Faith, written by Harry Emerson Fosdick in 1917. Fosdick was the favorite of John D. Rockefeller, who built the Riverside Church for him about the same time Christ Church was planted on this corner. It was the day of the high-profile, learned preacher the day when New York City Papers published front-page articles on Monday summarizing the content of one of the big steeple stars from Sunday. Hard to imagine that now. Imagine the front page of the New York Times or the New York Post with a lead column concerning the sermon of one of the city's preachers. It's a very, very different day indeed. But back then, Fosdick was something of a standout of thoughtful erudition, effectively connected to real life. Here's how he begins. A book on faith has been for years my hope and now comes to final form during the most terrific war men ever waged, when faith is sorely tried and deeply needed. Many streams of thought within the book flow in channels that the war has worn. Since the conflict had to come, I am glad for this book's sake that it was not written until it had Europe's Holocaust for a background. Now given the copyright, the war he's referencing is the First World War, one that he will later call the Great War. And the Holocaust he mentions predates the devastation of the Jews which came several decades later and captured forever the meaning of that word. Now more than a century later, I'm mindful of all of the wars that have been fought since up to and including our present moment, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Many terrible wars made the 20th century the bloodiest in human history, and we're not doing so well in the 21st. The First World War was Fosdek's war of the moment, his present circumstance stirring him to consider the meaning of faith that, as he said, is sorely tried and deeply needed. Of course, he was speaking at a different time to a very different audience, a very large national audience that would have shared many of the same religious and worldview perspectives. We're a lot more diverse audience today, a lot more challenging in that sense, I think. But but as for that we still yearn for that robust connection to something larger than ourselves that reliably organizes and empowers our lives, something we still call faith. That's what Roger was wanting. Not seeking a magical solution to his life situation, he was longing for a sturdy sense that the world made sense, that life and love had meaning, purpose, and directionality. It's long been said that human hardship is the universal context for forging faith. That was the case for Fosdick in 1917, as it is the case for us in 2022. If I were to write a new volume on the meaning of faith today, I would start from a different cultural standpoint, but human hardship would still figure prominently. I mean, how could it not? And even a brief engagement with the Bible reveals that human hardship and struggle frames out, frames the human cycle of birth and death, the anvil upon which faith is forged. That was certainly true of Jesus' experience. He lived in a time of competing worldviews, clashing religious perspectives, and colliding politics. His own death tells the tale on that. He walked among real people struggling through real life problems. Yet, through the fog of the gathering storm around him, he illuminated a bright and searing message about faith, trust, hope, and love. He embodied a message about faith from within human experience. It wasn't offered as observation from a far distance. It was rooted in our experience of life and death and everything that comes in between. So it's not surprising that Paul, writing from prison to Timothy, would mention that he remembers Timothy's tears as he also fortifies Timothy's faith. Timothy, my beloved child, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, recalling your tears. I am reminded of your sincere faith. Rekindle the gift of God that is within you, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love. Sprung from our shared human condition, tears express the universal human need. Along with the light and truth, we need healing, hope, and courage to live in a way that fosters these same ennobling things. All of these are pieces of the larger whole we call faith. Reaching for this larger way of living is not easy. It's no wonder that Jesus' friends exclaim, Lord, increase our faith. I'm thinking that it wouldn't be a great insight to assume that most everyone here hungers for greater faith. Fosdick put it this way, don't we hunger for the confidence that someone cares about our race in its conflicts and defeats? Don't we hunger for an intimate friend, a divine ally who, in the midst of the world's darkness and our own, assures us that life is not chance and chaos, but rooted in a great design? And don't we yearn for the gift to live our lives with confidence and joy, no matter what, capable of true grace and real love? I have certainly felt those needs vibrating my heart and my soul my whole life. God, if you're out there or in here, increase my faith. Surely most of you have shared this experience in some way. So this is where you help me write this sermon. This is where you insert your own story, your bit of the larger human drama, the part that matters deeply and desperately to you. I'll give you a moment to do that. Go ahead, bring it to consciousness. Bring your story, your heartache, your struggle, your concern, your faltering steps at love and forgiveness and courage and integrity. Bring that to mind. Now, maybe you've never said these words out loud. Lord, increase my faith. I tell you, it's an important prayer. The disciples give us permission to say it insistently. It reflects the deep hunger that wells up from time to time. You may feel that hunger now, or perhaps you will later in the day, or when you wake up tomorrow morning, or the day after that. It's an honest hunger. I say, let it come. Feel your stomach rumble for real food. Feel your need, Lord. Increase my faith. And Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Ironically, it would seem that by asking their question, the disciples reveal they already have the size, the faith, the size of a grain of mustard. They think that's their problem What they have is too small. Jesus seems to say that the faith they have is already the faith they need. A tiny bit in the hands of God is the same thing as a whole lot. Locked within the impossible confines of an impossibly small and dead-looking thing lays the potential for abundant, triumphant life. Like a kind of cosmic spiritual genetics, embedded within the tiny speck of our embryonic faith is the complete code of everything we might become as we nourish ourselves from God's bounty. And friends, on this point, it does not matter who we are. Age, life circumstance, gender, race, favorite sins. At this most basic level, we are alike. The biblical drama could use all of us for its source material. We're the last act currently being written. The biblical story continues to write us, as it were, as the latest testament to faith. Our tears could express the biblical lament, our bit of faith, our fledgling courage and faltering love could be the seeds that Jesus nurtures into transformed life. We are now the stumbling, bumbling disciples who learn about the things that matter most the hard way but learn we will, and we will thrive in love for love's sake. From us could come the gospel according to Don, the letter of Marsha, the first and second letters of Jeff, the book of Sharon. That's really the point of all of this, friends. That's why we come here, isn't it? Isn't that why we come to this reunion table month after month? to feed our souls on rich food that will sate the deepest hunger. And imagine, it's open to everyone who will come. Everyone. This revelation comes by way of faith. We sense the deep truth, but considering the world's record of wars and other hardships, we recognize that but for this mustard-sized germ of faith, we would not know we are all alike and found acceptable sprung from the same divine genetic stock nurtured with relentless forgiveness and grace and meant to be gathered around the same family table that each one of us has our place here counters the deadening effects of hopelessness in our individual experience and holds the promise of abundant life I tell you friends this is the flowering of faith and there is no greater gift